now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. Hey, this is Corey Minton. We are at the Disney Data and Analytics Conference, and we are pleased to have uh, Vikram Mahadar from Genpack join us today. Vikram, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, Corey. Excellent. We're glad to have you. So, Vikram, do me a favor. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do for Genpact? Sure. So, um, uh, in my current role at Genpact, I lead the AI business for Genpact. Uh, particularly, I'm figuring out uh, how to grow AI business, uh, given the, the kind of work that Genpack does, um, uh, particularly around uh, digitization of processes, transformation of processes, and how do you really think about uh, algorithmic automation uh, in those processes? Uh, prior to that, uh, uh, I was part of the executive team at Rage Frameworks, uh, which was a startup around natural language understanding, uh, which Genpact acquired uh, last year in 2017. Uh, and that was my entrepreneurial uh, stint, if you may, for several years. Um, and prior to that, I was um, uh, a managing director at uh, Deloitte, uh, leading the innovation initiatives around uh, AI, uh, right from transforming the audit business, uh, which is full of data, to uh, serving clients in a variety of industries, including uh, intelligence agencies, um, uh, financial services, uh, media, telecom, etc. So wide gamut of work that I've done uh, before that very in cool. the field of AI. So Genpact is, uh, it, it's obviously a very large company, but I don't know if it's one that is, you know, really a household name. Tell us a little bit about what Genpact does at a, as a, at a high level as an organization. Absolutely. So Genpact is a digital transformation company. We provide uh, professional services around digital transformation, but not only that, actually we execute those digital transformation uh, recommendations for our clients and actually own them as managed services and deliver outcome. So we provide the recommendations, not just on PowerPoint, but we execute and, and own those outcomes for our clients. Uh, that's what Genpact is. A uh, little bit of history. Genpact is actually a GE spinoff. Uh, spun off in 1997 uh, and went public in, in 2007. And we just uh, last year finished our 10-year anniversary going public. Um, so very proud of that. Very cool. So Genpact, I've, I've seen show up at a handful of the conferences. Folks are speaking like yourself. What, what's Genpact's approach to AI? They obviously have acquired a company that you were part of, but what's the kind of the macro approach that Genpact is taking in the world of AI? Yeah, so, so the big picture here is uh, for any digital transformation, um, uh, what we have agreed to as a company is to create a, what we call a um, uh, digital business platform. We call it Cora. And uh, what we did was we curated about 12 different technologies in three buckets. One is called uh, Digital Core, which is basically dynamic workflow, uh, mobile, you know, the core technologies. Then the second piece is analytics, where data engineering, advanced analytics, uh, those types of technologies come into play. And then the third a bucket is is artificial intelligence, uh, where 
computer vision, natural language understanding, conversational AI, and deep learning uh, uh, fall in that particular area. And uh, our approach here is to build uh, models and expertise on deploying those models in production. That's an operative word. You will find lots of proofs of concept out there uh, and very few people have truly deployed something in production. And what it takes actually is to bring in domain expertise because we are custodians of 4,000 different processes for 800 plus clients around the world. Uh, so we know those domains inside out. So what we do is we bring in technology, the modeling, data science techniques, and the domain expertise together and go mile deep on a particular problem. We are not looking to be a platform that is be all and all, but in four different areas, as I mentioned, in the area of text, pictures, uh, numbers, and uh, conversational interfaces, we are deploying, uh, developing and deploying specific models with the clients and operationalizing them, putting them in production day in and day out. So that's our approach to um, AI or deploying AI. Yeah. And so for these models, are you using some of the, you know, you mentioned the techniques, are these open source frameworks and libraries or how are you developing these models? It's a fantastic question. It's a fantastic question. So uh, as you uh, know, the way AI works is basically data analytics on its head, right? Uh, so there are, uh, there are three components to it. One is software. Second is the model. Third is the data. Um, and if you think about the classic data analytics technique, the software would be something like an Excel and uh, you put a model X plus Y equals Z in it. And then you put uh, data in it and say if it performs repetitively or not. Uh, whereas for AI, you go counterclockwise, right? There's a software, then you put data in it and you discover the model from it and it's a living model. The reason why I'm giving you this example is because that software piece today is not as packaged as Excel is for data analytics. It's not as packaged for AI. So there are plenty of different tools out there. Some are open source, some are offered by Googles and Microsofts of the world, and some are created by startups. Uh, so it all depends. The, the rule of thumb that we use uh, is, uh, how close can I get to a trained model for solving a particular problem or a transferable model for solving a particular problem. And I start with that piece of software first, and then I build on top of it. Our approach to the whole Quora platform is modular. Okay. So in some cases, I'll give you an example. With one client for conversational AI, a client said that, you know, I'm very comfortable with Google Dialogflow. That's the adopted platform. We want to implement uh, all our conversational interfaces in that platform. Sure, we'll bring that in. Uh, versus somebody said, you know, IBM is our preferred choice of platform. Sure, we'll bring that in. Uh, however, the key thing is that AI in itself is not going to generate value. AI plus something else, whether it is workflow, whether it is uh, some analytics, whether it is data engineering, all of that has to come together. And by the way, one important thing is governance. Most mm -hmm. people, and I'll talk more about governance, but most people actually ignore the fact that if the bot doesn't show up to work, what happens, <laughs> right? Yeah. All that componentry 
is provided on the Quora platform. And these different models, we maintain libraries of models, we maintain, we help clients create data pipelines. Uh, but all this is uh, done in a very modular fashion so that tomorrow, if there's, you know, switch that needs to happen, it can happen very easily. Yeah, because we do see a lot of our customers and a lot of people out there have the tool of the day based on what they're trying to accomplish. So maybe they want to bring in this framework for this model, but maybe tomorrow they need a different framework or library. So that modularity does help provide that, right? And you, you, is open for that. That's right. Okay. But it is creating a problem. Okay. So in current world, uh, any organization you go to and talk to and say that, you know, what's the biggest collaboration problem amongst your employees? The answer will be knowledge management, right? Knowledge sharing. Now with these bespoke applications that we're creating in different parts of the organization using AI, the problem is actually quadrupled because it is an intelligence management problem. Everybody is creating their own data pipeline versus you should be able to use the same data pipeline for, for uh, two different problem sets. To give you an example, for one of the companies, we were actually training machines to extract information from their freight invoices that are sent to them by the carriers who carry freight for them. And the problem at hand was, am I paying these carriers, and we're talking about a billion dollars spent here, am I paying these carriers for my contract or not? Am I paying these carriers for the transaction that we agreed to or not? because transportation transactions change up to up until the last minute. However, we ended up actually training the machine to extract all other elements as well, such as trade lane. What trade lane is it going on, right? When was the, the carrier, uh, when was the truck commissioned? When was the truck released? What is the timestamp on good receipts, goods receipt note, et cetera? We extracted all that information. Now you have labeled data, and all of a sudden the logistics and planning department said, we want to use that data to actually plan and optimize the trade lanes and get better rate on logistic, logistical planning. Now, if two different divisions were doing those two different things differently, there's a massive overhead. 80% of the work is actually involved in cleaning and organizing data pipeline. So I'm curious, what's the, you, you clearly have a bunch of customers that have, that have moved past what, you know, marketers are saying, you know, AI is, it's coming. No, it's here, right? People are absolutely, absolutely doing it, but not everybody's doing it or doing it well, which is why I'm guessing companies like Genpact have a business and have an opportunity to succeed. But what are the, what do you think some of the biggest challenges for those organizations that are trying to adopt uh, AI properly in the business to, to achieve the outcome? What are some of the biggest challenges you're seeing out there for organizations? Yeah. So I, I call them first mile problem. Yeah. Uh, the first and biggest uh, and the most important thing is framing the problem. In most cases, the problems are not framed correctly. And what I mean by that is, um, A, is the business value clearly understood? Is it directly linked to cost or revenue as the first degree of inference? If not, uh, it will be hard to prove. Okay. Number two, are there, is there enough knowledge work that is happening in that process or in that activity, either by your own employees or your partners or your consumers? If they are spending a lot of time interpreting the information, that means there is value there, right? And then number three is, uh, do you have the capability to operationalize the outcome that you're gonna get from implementing AI? Uh, 
typically those three things require a lot of preparedness. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, executive sponsorship as well. So that's the first mile problem. Okay. Uh, I'll also talk about you know the deployment, which is the, the in-between before the last mile. The deployment problem is that many times what happens is that say you get 50% accuracy on, on analyzing invoices. And all of a sudden, uh, the comment that, that you will get from the naysayers is, oh, the AI doesn't work. Well, guess what? You had, you had zero. Now you are at 50%. It takes time. Yeah. It takes time. Uh, and most people uh, give up or shut down the operation because it is at 50%. And I would say that if there is clear value that you can see, and if you are committed, if you have the executive sponsorship to change the way that it is operationalized, then I say, I say that you go at it because you will get there. Okay. It's not a matter of time. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Yeah. So there, there's bound to be, uh, you know, based on the way Genpact has interacted with customers and the things that your team is, is doing, I'm curious to hear what are some of the things that your team does to help organizations overcome those challenges? And how is it that this Quora platform is enabling you and your team to go see outcomes delivered? Great question. So first and foremost, uh, we spend a lot of time upfront uh, framing the problem with the customer. Okay, and also, by the way, uh, debunking some of the, the myth that the client has. Okay, so I'll give you an example. One of my clients came to me and said, I have hundreds of people uh, who are buyers who interact with uh, the suppliers and uh, they negotiate promotions and allowances that we get. And oh, by the way, it's all done on the phone and email and then in an Excel sheet. Uh, and then I have other hundreds of people who are their assistants who capture all of the this put it put together the audit trail and put the information in our purchasing system. Uh, now, uh, the, this this client said this is a perfect example for machine learning. We want you to come and train the machines to read all these emails so that these hundreds of people don't have to gather through it. We generate, by the way, twenty terabytes of emails every year uh, on that particular problem. So we went in and we said actually. This is a maker and a checker problem. You don't need AI. You need to get rid of these emails. <laughs> okay. You need a process change, so not a technology change. We reframed the problem. And we said, you need the process change and you need a system of engagement. Mm -hmm. Now, the best part is that Core platform offers a system of engagement, okay. right? Uh, from the workflow standpoint. So the, the first thing is that we, we go in and we frame the problem. Okay. The second thing is labeling the data and creating the pipelines, right? We start small. If the problem is not solved before, we start small and we say, okay, let's look at the data, let's label the pipeline, and then throw models at it that are in our library already. We have thousands of models in our library. We have thousands of knowledge graphs that we already have in place. Let's start there, right? And if not, we set the expectation with the client that we're starting from scratch uh, on this particular problem. Hope you are okay, and this is what to expect. And then along the way, there's the most important component, which is educating our clients and their stakeholders on what machine learning is. Uh, that's the most important part, the executive education around machine learning. And we do that very methodically. And do you see more success or more enablement once you are able to uh, reach the executives and, and provide that 
education to them and Absolutely. more traction? Absolutely. In fact, we see them more excited. We see them identifying more problems when they have better understanding of how machine learning actually works. Because there's a lot of myth out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, movies and, and certain books and fear factor. And expectations. And expectations. All of that has created a very different characterization of AI. But when I tell them that AI is not technology, it is math. It is different way of doing math, yeah. right? All of a sudden, the frame of reference has changed and they are going and finding problems for us that are actually very pra practical, non-sexy problems yeah. with right expectations. And uh, they're willing to, willing to bet on it because 95% of the problems that can be solved using machine learnings are not yet, uh, are not yet framed. Yeah, that's interesting. So we, we hear a lot from, you know, if you walk around any of these conferences, you, you pay attention to anything in, you know, in the social spheres, there's a lot of organizations that are kind of postulating that there's, that there's maybe an easy button to get to AI. Do you think that there's really like, is there some like one great technology that's coming together that this is, it's going to make it all easier? Or do you think it's it's bigger than that so so the entire ai community is is uh when i when i talk about community i'm talking about researchers technologists um you know uh practitioners it's very contagious community they are they're learning from each other very fast and everybody is working towards that easy button okay uh, everybody in their in their own rights um are we there yet? Of course not, because uh, we are actually solving for some fundamental, uh, just fundamental algorithms mm -hmm. that need to be there in place before we get to the easy part, right? So we are, we are pretty much creating new theories and new ways of doing things. Like for example, in the, in the case of computer vision, um, uh, object detection, and then classifying that object. And then by the way, now putting that object in the context, mm -hmm. interpretation of the context, finding the posture, say for example, if it is a human being, finding the posture and then detecting what is the next best, next best action that a human being is gonna do or gonna take, all that across different frames of pictures, this is all nascent. This is all you know, developed in the last four or five years. Yeah. So we are fundamentally changing how we analyze information uh, to get to that fast piece. Uh, of course, there are uh, there are tools out there such as AutoML uh, that Google has put out, uh, or or there are various tool sets that Microsoft has put out. Uh, but I think uh, there's a misunderstanding out there that uh, anybody and everybody can just take the open source. Uh, <laughs> tools yeah. uh, and and go and train uh, the models, uh, which is uh, which is a myth in my view. Yeah, uh, it does take three things: very good domain expertise, very good understanding of math and science, mm -hmm. and uh, lastly, operationalizing. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we always, you know, we, we talk about a bunch, which is, you know, data analytics or AI or any of the whatever term you want to use, it's really not possible unless you've got a lot of data, right? You need a lot of data to develop and train models potentially. What do you, wh how do you help organizations go from like, what if they don't have a lot of data? How do they actually get the value out of AI by being, still being maybe data poor? 
So it's a myth that you need a lot of data for every problem. Really? Okay. Uh, we don't we don't think that you need a lot of data for every problem. Okay. You know, it it depends on what problem are you trying to solve. So now in today's date and time for computer vision, for example, say I have trained models on X-ray images. A good part of that model is transferable to go and analyze pictures. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a lot of transferability in the models itself. You don't need tremendous amount of data. Okay. In some cases you do. I'm not saying that you don't, but in many cases you you don't really need lots and lots of data. And you can still be accurate, get that desired accuracy with minimal amounts of data. It depends on what you're looking to do. Absolutely. There are there are so if you're looking for accuracy through supervised training, right? Uh, you already know the output and the amount of variability if that is captured in your sample set, you're good to go. Whereas if you're looking for unsupervised uh, learning, applying unsupervised learning, where you kind of broadly know the goal, uh, but you don't know what the exact output looks like, right? In that case, you may need larger larger amounts of data. But then there's a whole new field of uh, synthetic data that has come in. Um, so just to explain to you what synthetic data means. Uh, let's say that you know I am training models to analyze um, damage on auto parts. Uh, now, uh, a particular automotive or a part in sunlight looks different than in rainy conditions. It looks different than uh, in, in snowy conditions. But I don't need to have all three pictures. I can simulate that data. I can uh, uh, create terabytes and terabytes of synthetic data uh, in some cases, not in every case, right. in some cases, and that becomes my corpus. It's almost like taking that car with a dent and changing the colors of the, the paint and then the same car, but now you have the different recognition? That is that is one, one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is, you know, um, let's say that, you know, I want to understand a consumer behavior in a retail store and how they are picking up a particular product, mm-hmm. right? Are they picking up at a 10 degree angle, 20 degree angle, 30 degree angle, 40 degree angle, whatever it is. I can actually train video game characters to go and pick that exact form factor with exact same image. And at night before leaving work, I can hit uh, the data generate button. And next morning I come back to terabytes and terabytes of simulated data. Yeah. So you 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 talked about the this you're creating basically synthetic images to train models. That falls under a category of artificial intelligence that's usually called computer vision, which I think you talked about. That's right. So I want to understand you you did a session here uh, at the at the Disney conference about computer vision and I think the title was computer vision where's the cheese. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what your uh, what was the basis for your talk. Well, the basis of, basis for my talk was uh, number 1 uh, characterizing how far computer vision has come to solve some practical problems. Uh, number two was, uh, how do we really frame computer vision problems? Number three, what particular industries or, or um, functions in which uh, computer vision is showing some really great results? For example, uh, what we're noticing is that in consumer-related um, problem sets, uh, which which is basically, you know, doing consumer research studies, which many consumer companies do day in and day out, and analyzing those using just machines. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, very mature at this point, relatively speaking. Uh, the second is manufacturing. 
okay. you know, identifying points of failures on a manufacturing line or in products through computer vision. Uh, number three is retail. And number four is, is insurance. Okay. Uh, there's tremendous amount of work that we do ourselves uh, through image inspection, uh, which, which was done manually. And now we are using machines uh, to do image inspection ourselves. So several industries are picking it up. And one example at Disney that we were postulating was, uh, you know, when you go on the ride, uh, you are there for a magical experience. And you want to capture that magical moment in a, in a picture. Mm -hmm. But when you come off the ride, half the times those pictures are... <laughs> Not so, not so magical. <laughs> They're not flattering. Right? Not flattering. <laughs> so how do you make sure that you take those hundreds of images and detect automatically in which image the posture is right, mm -hmm. in which image the clothing is appropriately uh, sitting on you? Uh, maybe you have a smile on your face. Uh, and, and when you come off the ride, you're presented with just that picture and nothing else. That's that's magical moment. And it's possible yeah. using computer vision. So computer vision is one of these areas where I, I've seen some, some research going into it, but it feels like one of those that where you, you really do need large amounts of data to or large amounts of imagery. And that's, you know, maybe it's easy for companies like Google where they, you know, they give you a free app where you can, you know, get a one copy of your photos from your iPhone or your Android device saved forever, which I'm guessing they're basically crowdsourcing lots of data for image classification. But for those organizations that maybe don't have, you know, computer vision sort of figured out in the industries you talked about, how are, how are people going out and building data pipelines? to get that image and get that data so that they can develop those capabilities. Yeah, so, so you know, I use an analogy here, which is um, augment before autonomous. Okay. So, you know, the best example of computer vision is autonomous cars, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, but autonomous cars did not capture or anticipate all that data on day one. They have been on the road for last decade at least yeah. uh, and capturing all that data. And it is called interaction data. Mm -hmm. Once you put something on the street, then you realize that, oh, you know, we can capture this data and that data. So the best way of doing it is that, you know, you don't have to start with computer vision. You can start with particular application mm -hmm. that may deliver maybe smaller value to begin with. But then it has appropriate data capture mechanisms to capture pictures, right? That's one way to do it. Yeah. The second way to do it is, as I mentioned, transferability uh, between models is is very high depending on what you're doing mm -hmm. so even if you don't have the images of your own uh you can take transferable models from other images and there are by the way uh some public image databases out there mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to be a large company with with uh you know petabytes of of uh, images available right uh, you can actually use those images as a starting point you may not get 100 percent accuracy but remember you were at zero <laughs> yeah, so anything is yeah. better. Yeah. So when people are starting to build these data pipelines, they're looking, and not just for computer vision, but in general from an AI perspective, they're looking at data from a lot of different sources, both internal and external. And in the current climate of, uh, of, of legislation and um, control, there's a lot of concern over governance, not only governance of... Uh, of the data, but of the models. What are you? What are you seeing in terms of, you know, how are organizations dealing with this increase in legislation of governance, but still being productive and achieving outcomes? Yeah. So uh, again, um, one of the one of the areas that requires uh, a lot more formulation, and uh, and um, 
creating of creation of policies. But what we are doing is we actually have created governance tools, sure. uh, both for models as well as data sets. So to begin, and not just that, by the way, the teams that we use are also diverse right up front because there's tremendous amount of bias that's in the data sets. And in most cases, what we do is we use human in the loop. So whenever we are discovering patterns in data pipelines, uh, we look for bias. For example, again, the, the auto insurance uh, example where we are analyzing images of data damage, uh, or sorry, of auto parts damage, and, and then figuring out whether it is repair or replace. Now the repair or replace part is coming from the previous judgment that human beings have made, but it is possible that those judgments were wrong. So when we work with the customers, uh, we actually detect those patterns and then put it in front of them and say, here's what your best adjusters were doing, doing. here's where, where your worst adjusters were do doing. What do you think is the right approach? Mm -hmm. Should we introduce that bias in the mix or not? Right? In some cases it may be healthy, but you know, should we introduce that or not? Right from there to having not just data scientists on the team, but right domain experts on the team, so that we are not just looking at zeros and ones, but we are looking at actually the domain context while analyzing that bias. And then also, who is generating that data is very critical. Uh, it is possible that you know um, a whole bunch of consumers are interacting with your application, and 90% of them were, were male. Uh, that's a bias. So you need to keep that in mind as well. Um, uh, so we have created governance tools and then also models erode. There is the mm -hmm. whole uh, you know, area of model erosion uh, and we have techniques that we are developing and have developed in some cases where we are constantly monitoring model erosion. You know, it's primarily through sampling, understanding, looking at the quality, uh, et cetera. And, uh, uh, there are other techniques that are being tested in academia right now uh, around explainability, right? Depending on the problem that you're solving, explainability is, is very critical. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when you're applying techniques such as neural nets, uh, explainability becomes uh, very hard. Uh, but in academia now, there are techniques that are being tested where can you at least do the explainability at the at the layer level of a particular neural net mm -hmm. or or in some cases down to the node level. Um, so so there's, there's lots of work that is going on in explainability and we take that very seriously. Excellent. So you, you did share a few use cases, but I wanted to just kind of pick your brain. You obviously deal with customers around the world, solving interesting problems. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing maybe one of your favorite use cases where you see an organization really deriving like unique, massive value from implementing AI with impact. There are many. Uh, <laughs> That's but, a nice problem to have. <laughs> uh, there are many, uh, but, but let's... Uh, Let's focus on uh, one of my favorite examples, actually, where um, a, cli a client, uh, uh, which is a consumer product uh, manufacturing company, has a 300,000 plus uh, SKUs, uh, and uh, they sell it to a couple of hundred retailers, and they create promotion contracts uh, with each one of these retailers. For example, item one will sell from April 1 through April 30th uh, at 50 cents discount. And oh, by the way, you, Mr. Retailer, should pass on the 50 cents to the consumer. Uh, and then whenever you are done, come back to us and tell us how many boxes you sold 
uh, raise the invoice, mm -hmm. 50 cents times, say, 100 boxes you sold, yeah. uh, send the invoice to us for $50, and we'll cut you the check. Uh, but what ends up happening is that uh, the contract is created by somebody uh, in a retailer system, and it sits in one place. Uh, the invoices are raised, invoices come in, each retailer has their own format of invoices. Uh, so you can imagine the proliferation. And by the way, they have their own way of expressing the item name. Uh, they may abbreviate, like for example, if it is ground coffee, 10 ounce bag, they may write G-R-N-D-C-F-E-T-E-N-O-Z. <laughs> is that the same product? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, and then the third thing is, uh, proof of performance. How do I know that you sold 100 boxes and you're not inventory gorging, right? So it's a three-way match that happens. First, interpretation of contracts. Second, interpretation of invoices. Marrying the contracts and invoices and finding out the delta. Mm -hmm. Then marrying it with uh, a data from, say, Nielsen or IRI mm -hmm. and saying, is the point of sales data the same? Did they sell it for the discount price or not? Mm -hmm. And then evaluating what the deduction was. And in this particular case, 33% um, uh, of the sampling was being done uh, for uh, uh, you know, millions in deductions in, in single digits. Mm -hmm. And we scaled the machines to do it 100% sampling. And oh, by the way, uh, there were 160 people who were doing it, just the 33%. We brought it down by 64%, so 64% productivity. Now we are able to do 100% of the work. So it's 300% productivity. Yeah. And most importantly, the value part, the value loss that was prevented is, is twice or thrice. <laughs> That's wild. Right? And it's, it's not because anybody wanted to cheat anybody. No. It's pure reconciliation problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, but when the magnitude of variability is so high, right, reconciliation becomes a becomes a problem. Yeah. And uh, that's where we were able to solve problem using AI. Very cool. Well, it's been great to have a chat with you, Vikram. I loved your, you've got a very pragmatic approach. I, I like that there's not a lot of uh, superfluous kind of, you know, over the top views of AI. You have a very, uh, you know, practical approach. And it sounds like what Genpact is delivering is that practical guidance to customers to frame the problems well, use technology as it makes sense to the problem, and really focus in on the outcome. So I, I really appreciate and I think everybody will enjoy. I want to shift gears here. A lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. What year will Skynet go online? 2025. <laughs> I, th I feel like 2022, 2025. Yeah, like that's I mean, the, the that's range. Where a lot I'm of actually people. get my fear is going to go through the roof around 2022. I have to build my uh, doomsday shelter by then. <laughs> what is the last great book that you read? Uh, but the Hidden Brain. Okay. Uh, was was very well uh, written book. What, what is the Hidden Brain? What's the premise? Well, it it basically talks about um, you know how uh, AI truly works oh, okay. uh, in parallel with uh, human behavior. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. What genre of music are you rocking out to now? A lot of kid music. I have a 10-year-old <laughs> and a 6-year-old, oh, so yeah. a lot of kid music. <laughs> there That's you awesome. go. That's awesome. What piece of technology 
is currently making your life worse. I hate to say this, but uh, but uh, it's uh, text messages. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's proliferation of text messages nowadays. Whenever in the last two hours, I have been uh, on the panel mm -hmm. and I've been talking to you, and my team has not been able to reach me through uh, uh, phone calls or emails. So I literally have at least. 25 to 50 text messages oh, oh wow uh, uh oh. where they want to ask me something oh that's awesome i i feel that way about email email is my like the bane of my existence it's a burning trash fire email i've uh, i've moved past it I will never be <laughs> you can delete to... an email just by pressing delete not by swiping and pressing delete yeah. Yeah. text you know text messages show up on the on the, yeah, on the screen right the moment there. you open so what is your biggest personal money pit right now I am buying uh, way too many devices uh, and implementing them around my house. For example, for this Christmas, under the premise of presents, I bought eight Alexas and implemented them around my house and gathering data with permission of my family yeah. uh, just to tinker around and play with it. I'm a curious guy and uh, I love to, to, to learn through my personal experiences. Nice. Well, next, well, next time you're walking through your house, whatever room of the house you're in, you can just say, Alexa play the Big Data Beard podcast and you'll uh, you'll be able to find your show. I sure will. There you, there you go. Are you going anywhere interesting soon? Every year, my family and I, we take uh, a few vacations uh, and, you know, they are sort of, you know, categorized in certain certain buckets. And one vacation that we take every two years is, uh, is to India. That's where my family is uh, and my wife's family is. But while growing up, uh, I moved to the United States as a one or two young young kid um, and I've not seen a whole lot of India so we figure out one or two states where we're gonna drive through and and look at the countryside yeah. so I will be in India this December uh, looking through the southern part of India and showing them showing it to my kids because whenever I say in India we did this they roll their eyes they don't know <laughs> what it is yeah that's perfect uh, so I want to see the see that's the super cool country. yeah I, uh, I got to go to India the first for my first time like two years ago and I was floored at well, it was just beautiful but there's like there's so much of that culture that I just didn't understand that is so unique and interesting and man I tell you what the food was out of this world I didn't I didn't even know I liked Indian food until I went to Bangalore and I just I ate my way through that city it was incredible excellent excellent and what is your favorite Disney character that's a good question um, well obviously you know uh, Mickey Mouse comes to mind mm -hmm. uh, because that image is imprinted on from your in your head. But yesterday, before before leaving Boston, I asked my kids, "So, hey, what do you want from Disney?" Uh -huh. And apparently, now lately, they have been in a High School Musical, and it's one of the Disney productions. Oh, really? I didn't know. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm now gonna go and find T-shirts with High School Musical. Uh, imprints on it and yeah. take it back home. Oh, good for you. So, Vikram, where can we find you in the social sphere? Are you on Twitter or Facebook? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, hash, you know, my, my handle is Vikram underscore MIT. Okay. And uh, obviously I'm on LinkedIn, a uh, whole bunch of uh, YouTube videos. Uh, and I write, uh, I love to write, so I publish uh, pretty regularly. Okay. My last article was in uh, Sloan Management Review uh, around uh, what is what is your cognitive strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, soon there will be a couple of other articles coming out. Brilliant. Well, very cool. Well, I've I've had a blast having the conversation with you. Again, I like the the pragmatic approach to AI with a, a seasoned understanding, you know, framing the problem correctly, using technology where it makes sense and, and really focusing on the outcome. So Vikram, thank you so much for being on the Big Data Beard podcast. 
If you're listening to podcasts, chances are you like big data and you like to learn. Well, we do too. And that's why we've partnered with O'Reilly Media. As a community partner for their incredible strata data and artificial intelligence conferences that are taking place around the world. If you would like a 20% discount on these conferences, simply use the promo code PCBeard at checkout, or you can click the link in our show notes. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. And don't forget to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. 